Episode. I got my uh, co-host Teresa with me. Uh, Teresa, would you like to say what's up and let everybody know who you are and what your deal is? Yeah, thank you for having me back again. Uh, yes, I am Teresa, like you said, and um, people can also find me on our other show, the Spiritual Gangsters Podcast. So um, that's on all the major platforms, and of course YouTube and Rumble, and you can connect with me on Instagram if awesome. they want to find me. Yeah. Yes, and your uh, link tree will be in the bottom, and that has everything you need to uh, find <laughs> from the spiritual gangsters. For I, sure. And you know, and honestly, I think at this point, I'm going to stop introducing you like that and just have you plug your show at the end because it's like, right? It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like you're just part of the People show. Probably now. Like, the know yeah. by now. Yeah. Good enough. And then I could just run right into the show because, again, like I, I hate intros. <laughs> the worst part of the whole okay. thing, I know. Just start talking. Uh, yeah, Just right? forget. No more intros at all, I mean, everyone. You know what? I've actually, you know what's so funny? And it, dude, it's due to the way I have my intro set up, actually. With me talking over the music, I have literally thought about changing my intro and just having the music stop and then the show go. Because that's even part of it, too. I have to, because of the loudness of the, whatever. I'm sure some people would understand who make their own shit. It's it's almost like I have to like kind of run my mouth for a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather just like, yo, it's the NY Patriot show and today's topic is a fascist <laughs> fascist Italy. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah. So uh, as you can see by the title of the name, we're talking about uh Italy, you know, during its uh, fascist time. Um, and I guess that's really just because of the things that we've been covering in the past. You know, we talked about Japan. I mean, you know, talked about our own country doing some screwed up <laughs> stuff that a lot of people, uh, you know, may not know about or might be a little bit of a surprise. And, uh, you know, there was a thing with Italy that I, I did kind of have like somewhat of an idea that I felt like they just kind of always flew under the radar in a sense. Um, yeah. Just with even just with occultism, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think people understand how important Italy is, in my opinion, when it comes to occult magic to be being used on people or even just occult knowledge. I think, do think Italy's a big part of that. And that makes me think that they might actually be playing like sleight of hand, maybe at times. Maybe Who that's knows? how they get away with everything. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah. so good at the magic part. <laughs> no, that's kind of what I was getting at. Right, yes. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, so I just have always thought like they may not be as squeaky clean as some people think they are. And I, I, I think just because of researching stuff on Japan, uh, it, there's a thing that popped up on YouTube for me that was like, uh, it was like someone speaking at a college, actually. It was like a college lecture, lecture, university lecture. And like the, something in the name of the title is like, you know, why has Italy always like escaped? Like whatever. I can't remember the name of the video, but it was basically them covering like, you know, this country has done some wild screwed up shit itself. Nobody talks about that. Like, mm. like even when I was looking into stuff about Japan, there was somebody who briefly mentioned, uh, I was looking into MK Ultra stuff, Sydney Gottlieb, and somebody was doing a lecture on it. And they brought up briefly, uh, even in that lecture, stuff that Japan has done. Just said it real quick and was like, you know, it's funny how there's like other countries besides Germany 
that did some pretty wild stuff during World War II, and you just yeah. don't seem to hear about that. Everything's always Hitler. Yes. You know, and then I started to, uh, you know, look into Italy, especially after I came across that other YouTube show, which uh, YouTube documentary or whatever it was, lecture. Um, didn't even fully watch it, but I, I got the, you know, the I got the idea from it. And I started looking into uh, Italy, and I was like, you know, the fascist, the communist party, concentration camps, like all these things. I was like, oh. You know, and it just, to me, uh, I think covering from like 1921 on in the show that we do, um, I understand like at the end, you know, 1943, whatever, like or World War II, you know, Nazi, Nazi Germany comes in and basically yeah. really runs stuff. But it's just, you know... Again, with the sleight of hand, is it like, well, you know, he's already been donned. <laughs> he's been donned, the bad guy already, in WWE <laughs> that we're watching right now. Uh, you know, yeah. let's just you keep it going and just come in here and we'll use your name for doing everything we didn't want people to think we were involved in. It's just yeah. very weird. It's just very weird when you look at their history. It just always seems like they kind of like stayed away from like the edge of the horrible stuff and then just allowed someone else to come in and do it. I don't know. But I do find their history very uh, interesting, and I think there is a few things I will touch on that, to me, even uh, just solidifies more of my opinion how I do think a lot of World War II was a cult war in itself. Uh, there's just some interesting things that I will also show with Italy, uh, the places that they invaded and things that they may have taken, I just find to be very uh, occult, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. Like, even, like, the ideas of the Ethiopians, what they were believing when they invaded them, you know, their talisman fucking looking flags and all that shit. It's just, to me, it seems like of a, a bunch of occult chess moves. Yeah. Surrounded with fascism. <laughs> you know? Sprinkled so, with fascism. Yes. So, like, yeah. and I think another part of that, to be totally honest with you, I think people should wonder the moving uh, drive behind the idea of nationalism that points you to this extreme. Yes. Maybe there is a magical component behind that. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't seem to work out as well as everybody seems to think it's going to. You know? Never does. No, never does. Never does. <laughs> and why is that? Why is that? Yeah. Uh, overcompensation. All right, so I'm going <laughs> to get into it now. Uh, we'll get, uh, I'm going to try to go in chronological order here. Um, I guess I'll really start with in 1921. Uh, the Italian Communist Party was a communist party in Italy. It was founded in the communist part of Italy on the 21st of January, 1921. That's interesting, too. Hmm. One, two, one, two. Mm -hmm. Two, one. Uh, whatever. God. And uh, Livorno, when it succeeded from the Italian Socialist Party under the leadership of uh, Amadeo Bordiga, I'm probably going to screw these names up. Antonio uh, Gramsci and uh, Niccolo, uh, Nicola Bambacci, maybe is how you say these names. Outlawed during the uh, Italian fascist regime, the party continued to operate underground and played a major role in the Italian resistance movement. In 1943, it changed its name to the Italian Communist Party. It became the second largest political party of Italy after World War II, attracting the support of about a third of the vote sharing during the 1970s. At the time, it was the largest communist party in the Western world, with peak support reaching 2.3 million members in 1947. 
and peak sharing being 34.4% of the vote in the 1976 Italian general election. Hmm. So I just wanted to cover that because, like, I didn't even know, like, communism. Like, I knew Italian. I knew Italy, you know, had fascist roots. You know, I mean, it's quite obvious just from the way my Italian family grew up. <laughs> Very fascist <laughs> thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Do as I say. Why? Because I said so. Oh, okay. Could just be parents in general, yeah, but yes, yeah. it's very common well, in Italian yeah. households. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, but I had no idea about the, you know, the Communist Party, and I had no idea. I mean, a fucking third of the vote. Whew. I'm just wondering. It's funny, like the timing, because you said it uh, started to kind of form more formally in like the 20s, right? And the, my own, my own ancestry, like that would have been probably close to around the time my great-grandfather would have come to Canada as a child with his brother. And I wonder if they left because of that. I'm curious. I, you know, gotta I was ask, thinking... Gotta the, ask my dad. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing because I do have a... Uh, I mean, going by the age of my grandfather when he ended up in World War II for the Americans, mm-hmm. um, he had to have left Italy, I would assume, around the same time. Uh so I like I, you know I think I was even saying to this to you before we even recorded. Um, I do think like I'm going to say this, and uh, you know with Italy and the even other countries that are coming over here now. Mm-hmm. Um, you left your country because of, you know you're saying it was fascist, the communist. But the thing is, is that at some point, in my opinion, people had accepted some of it before it got pushed too far. And then you're like, okay, this is too much. And now I'm leaving. Yeah. So you are going to bring the amount of fascist and communist thinking that you accepted already over here. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, that's why I think like how, like I was like saying about like, you know, family joking around. Mm-hmm. I do think that, uh, when you leave these places, even though that you're trying to escape this, you unfortunately do bring some sort of the accepted beginning of it over here in your thinking and ideology. Well, I think when you talk about Italy, you have to always frame, like keep in mind, like the ancestry of like ancient Rome, because that mentality it's a very militant, organized mentality. So it's like that trickles down and that is like a big part of what fascism is. You know, that's mm-hmm. like the roots. And I feel like, you know, that plays into your ancestral memory and your genetic memory. And it does affect how you think and act. You know, even hundreds of years later. Totally, totally agree. Mm-hmm. A fascist Italy, and from 1922 to 1943, the Kingdom of Italy was governed by the National Fascist Party from 1922 to 1943 when Benito Mussolini as uh, the prime minister. The Italian fascists imposed authoritarian, uh, authoritarian rule and crushed political and intellectual opposition while promoting economic modernization, traditional social values, and a reproachment with the Roman Catholic Church. With the concept of totalitarianism, Benito Mussolini and the fascist regime sent, uh, set an agenda of improving Italian culture and society based on ancient Rome, personal dictatorship, and some uh, futurist, futurist aspects of Italian intellectuals and artists. 
Under fascism, the definition of the Italian nationality was to rest on a militarist foundation and the fascists' new man idea, in which loyal Italians would rid themselves of individualism and autonomy and see themselves as a component of the Italian state and be prepared to sacrifice their lives for it. Under such a totalitarian government, only fascists would be considered true Italians. And membership and endorsement of the fascist party was necessary for people to gain complete citizenship. Those who did not swear allegiance to fascism would be banished from public life and could not gain employment. The fascist government also reached out to Italians living overseas to endorse the fascist cause and, and identify with Italy rather than their places of residence. That's even like asking Italians to just push propaganda. Yeah. And I know, like, in Canada, um, we had for a time, like, internment camps here for Italian people and Japanese because, I guess, you know, they wanted to suss out the fascist Italians and Japanese and lock them up. One of my relatives was in one for a while. So, there you go. It's interesting. Yeah. It's like McCarthyism in the U.S. when you, like, you know, suss out your neighbor. Like, oh, my God, they're a commie. <laughs> <laughs> they get arrested or something like, oh, geez. Mm, they didn't wear a mask from the house to the car. Well, honestly, <laughs> like when you don't, doesn't that like strike a chord when you hear this stuff? Like I'm listening and it's like, you couldn't get employment. You couldn't be a full citizen. Like we were almost there. Some people, my dad did lose his job during the last few years. Cause you know, he wouldn't identify with a certain medical treatment. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were there. We're on the precipice of a full-on, full-blown dictatorship. So, yeah, scary times. Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm even, like, even with the things that I'm covering, like, with this in Japan and, like, other things I want to cover, it's just sometimes, like, you know, these just, uh, what we're seeing now are these old moves, these old chess moves that have been done already. Old moves, nothing new under the big fat sun. Yep. <laughs> same shit, just different, just handed to you in a different way. Yeah, But uh, I'll read this last sentence and then you can uh, continue. Uh, despite efforts to mold a new culture for fascism, fascist Italy's efforts were not as drastic or successful in comparison to other one-party states like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in creating a new culture. That's another thing that I think I will be covering too is the Soviet Union. Mm, that's a good one you know, for yeah, sure. Because, I mean, that's just like another thing where, you know, I, I guess depending on who you want to worship or not, you forget the atrocities that happened. You know, whatever. Well, you know, I think that they, like we were saying before, like how Hitler is always like the scapegoat, like uh, the bad guy, the WWE character, right? And a lot of times in mainstream media or history, we don't learn a lot about the communist side of things or the Soviet side. Well, maybe in America you do. I don't know. Here, it's not emphasized. And well, I do believe that uh, on purpose. Yeah. And I, I think part of the thing, I guess what I'm also getting at too, is that like, you know, with some of these countries, well, like I, I was saying before with Italy, and I'll even throw Germany in there, I still think they're actually huge with running the show right now still. But you wouldn't think so because of the way history's been handed to you. Mm -hmm. Um 
because now people, for whatever reason, want to think Putin is going to save people, they'll discredit the obvious direction that country's been going in for how long? Yeah. Regardless of what puppet's been handed to you in, on the TV, they'll yeah. discredit that direction and everything that they've been doing almost lockstep because now somebody on Instagram said this person's going to save us and we're supposed to worship them. That's what I'm getting at, too. It's like, you know, look yeah. at the past and look at how it's still going from there and tell me if you really think these motherfuckers are still in our best interest. I think, it, like, Italy is an interesting example because you do have, like, the rise of communism and then the rise of fascism as a response. And I think that that is exactly what's happening in America right now. Again, another continuation of the Roman Empire, and you're seeing the rise of the left. And in response, then you get the opposite polarity to match. Like, it ignites people, and it turns on something in a lot of people that, like, uh, when their enemy arises, it's like this whole other side, like, rises to meet it, you know? So it's a, it's a weird I mean, look, case study. Very Italian fascist ideas made millions of dollars on the big screen. And have instilled ideas in people's minds thinking that it's cool and okay. Well, yeah. What is the mafia? Kiss my <laughs> fucking ring, you bitch. <laughs> yeah. That's not cool. You're a fucking slave. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's been not glamorized. Cool. And when, they, when things get glamorized, just like when trannies get glamorized, people imitate it. Mm-hmm. This didn't have to do with a look. This only has to do with the mindset, which will attract a lot more people. Because you can think that way, but then not be put in a category because of the way you dress. You know, it's a lot easier to put people in categories by the way they look instead of like what's really gone in their head, going on in their head that they're not telling you also. It's trickier. Yes, it's a lot trickier and it's a lot more devious, I think. Definitely. I'm sorry for that rant. So you can go <laughs> it's now. Okay. That's all right. Um, do you want to get into yes. Italy's conquests in Libya? Yes. Yeah. Now we're going to, uh, yeah, again, I just wanted to cover that just in case some people didn't actually know that like, you know, their fascism and communist ideas and parties went back that far. And now I guess we'll be going more into kind of like war crimes or, you know, questionable things. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like we were saying, you know, like often it's the Hitler gets thrown as the big bad guy of world war two. Um, you know, he's probably the most well-known name of a dictator a totalitarian dictator that people can rhyme off and know, like even probably young children know his name, but they don't really know a lot about like other small time dictators. You could say like Mussolini might be like a lesser known one. A lot of people probably don't know details of like his reign and um, Italy's history, like during that time. So this is just like one example of that. So in 1923, we have the Second Italo-Senussi War, which is also referred to as the Pacification of Libya. This was a conflict that occurred during the Italian colonization of Libya between Italian, Italian military forces, um, which were composed mainly of colonial troops from Libya, Eritrea, and Somalia, and indigenous rebels associated with the Senussi order. This war lasted from 1923 till 1932, 
when the principal Sanusi leader Omar al-Mukhtar was captured and executed. Fighting took place in all three of Libya's provinces, which is Tripolitania, Fezzan, and Cyrenaica. It's like I never heard that name before. Cyrenaica. I'm going to go with that. What was most intense and prolonged in the mountainous Jebel Akdar region of Cyrenaica? The war led to the mass deaths of indigenous people totaling one quarter of the region's population of 225,000. Just a lot of people. Italian war crimes included the use of chemical weapons. Here we go again with the chemical warfare, right? Mm -hmm. Execution of surrendering combatants and the mass killing of civilians. We saw this in Japan also, and of course in Germany. Uh, While the Sanusis were also accused of torture and mutilation of captured Italians, uh, and refusal to take prisoners until the 1910s. Italian authorities forcibly expelled 100,000 Bedouin uh, Cyrenaicans, <laughs> half of the population of Cyrenaica, from their settlements, uh, many of which were then given to Italian settlers. So we have displacement of refugees, right? This is uh, history repeating again. Yeah. We've got... Lots of movement of people around the world due to conflicts right now. Um, and then if people just want to know, do you want to know a little bit about those two groups? Yeah, like the Bedouin? I think, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I'll just say it real quick. I think the real sure. important thing that uh, I just wanted to mention about them, um, they were both of like Muslim beliefs. And uh, we're going to throw up, I guess, the Sanusi like crest. I'll throw that up on screen. Um, this, and then going into something else that we're covering, it's just, I, I, I do think that they're, you know, I say this about World War II, and I know this is like prior to World War II, but I do mm-hmm. think there was a lot of wars that were going on that were like almost as like occult chess moves or wars in a sense. And I just, uh, I think when you start looking at these like th- symbols that they're using for their names and finding out what's behind it, it just... I just wanted to include that. To me, I think there could be something actually behind why Italy did this in Ethiopia and why Hitler was doing what he was doing. Just to me, it looks like occult chess moves, especially with the occult symbolism that's on these things. Yeah, it's very interesting when you see it. Um, okay, sorry. No, quite all right. A little bit more about Libya. Okay, so the war began with Italian forces rapidly occupying the Surti Desert. What do you think it is, Surti or Surte? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna <laughs> go with Surti. Sure. I'm surprised. I'm a really good reader, honestly. But like some of these words, I am stumped. Yo, you know, it's funny because like I was like, well, you know, you definitely speak Italian better than me. And I was like, oh, she'll, she'll, I, don't know about I was that, like, she'll but... probably have no problem getting these names in these. That's so funny. We're both, I feel like we're both the like era of immigration where it's like by now we've just like lost the like actual authentic Italian, which people make fun of me for all the time because a lot of people in Canada, like they're, they're like first or second generation, like my age, but my family's like this anomaly where like my great grandfather came here in like 1919. So it's like, I'm like a fourth generation Canadian, but fully Italian blooded. So there you go. (laughs) 
It's an anomaly, people. All right. Anyways, sorry, I digress. Uh-huh. <laughs> the war with uh, Libya and Italy began when Italian forces were rapidly occupying the Surdi Desert, separating Tripolitania from Cyrenaica. Using aircraft, motor transport, and good logistical organization, the Italians were able to occupy 150,000 square kilometers of territory in five months, cutting off the physical connection formerly held by the rebels between Cyrenaica and Tripolitania. By late 1928, the Italians had taken control of Gibla, and its tribes were disarmed. From 1923 to 24, Italian troops regained all territory north of the Ulid region. In this period, they also regained the northern lowlands of Cyrenaica, but attempts to occupy the forested hills of Jabal Akhtar were met with strong guerrilla resistance, and this was led by the Senussis and their sheikh Omar Mukhtar, their leader. Attempted negotiations between Italy and Omar Mukhtar broke down, and Italy then planned for the complete conquest of Libya. In 1930, Italian forces conquered Fezzan and raised the Italian flag in Tumo, the southernmost region of Fezzan. On June 20, 1930, Pietro Badoglio wrote to General Graziani, that's the famous Italian general. He said, as for overall strategy, it is necessary to create a significant and clear separation between the controlled population and the rebel formations. I do not hide the significance and seriousness of this measure which might be the ruin of the subdued population. Uh, by 1931, well over half the population of Cyrenaica were confined to 15 concentration camps, and many died as a result of overcrowding in combination with a lack of water, food, and medicine, while Badoglio had the Air Force use chemical warfare on the rebels, um, the Bedouin rebels in the desert. Here we go again, chemical yeah. warfare. I like that stuff. I really like that strategy. <laughs> All right. So continuing on, 12,000 Cyrenaicans were executed in 1931, and all the nomadic peoples of northern Cyrenaica were forcefully removed from the region and relocated to huge concentration camps in the Cyrenaican lowlands. Italian military authorities carried out the forced migration and deportation of the entire population of Jebel Akdar in Cyrenaica, resulting in 100,000 Bedouins, half the population of Cyrenaica being expelled from their settlements. These 100,000 people were mostly women, children, and elderly, forced by Italian authorities to march across the desert to a series of barbed wire concentration camp compounds erected near Benghazi. Oh, we know that word. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, yo, I <laughs> thought that when I saw that. I was like, hmm, what's up with <laughs> It just sounds familiar. (laughs) While stragglers who could not keep up with the march were shot by Italian authorities. Well, that's fucked up. Propaganda by the fascist regime declared that the camps were to be the oases of modern civilization, and they were hygienic and efficiently run. However, in reality, the camps had poor sanitary conditions, as the camps had an average of about 20,000 Bedouins together with their camels, other animals, all crowded into an area of one square kilometer. That's messed up. Which is 0.39 of a square mile for you American. Yep. <laughs> what the fuck is a kilometer? Or, uh... Uh, the camps held only rudimentary medical services, 
with the camps of Soluk and Sisi Ahmed Al Magrun with 33,000 internees, of course. 33. Each, have, yeah, each having only one doctor between them. Holy shit. It's worse than prison. Hmm. Yeah, right. Typhus and other diseases spread rapidly in the camps as the people were physically weakened due to meager food rations and forced labor. By the time the camps closed in September 1933, 40,000 of the 100,000 total internees had already died in the camps. So 40%. All right, a little bit more on this. Uh, to close rebel supply routes from Egypt, the Italians constructed a 300-kilometer barbed wire fence on the border with Egypt that was patrolled and armored by cars and aircraft. The Italians persecuted the Senussi order, mosques were closed, Senussi practices were forbidden, and estates were confiscated. Preparations were made for Italian conquest of the Kufra Oasis, the last stronghold of the Senussis in Libya. In 1931, Italian forces seized Kufra, where Senussi refugees were bombed and strafed by Italian aircraft as they fled into the desert. Mukhtar himself was captured by the Italians in 1931, followed by a court-martial and his public execution by hanging at Saluk. Mukhtar's death effectively ended the resistance, and in January 1932, Badoglio proclaimed the end of the campaign. Mukhtar's aides were executed later that year on September 24th, 1932. Um, another important part of the conflict was the deportations and what was known as the death marches. So we'll go into a little bit of that. Uh, after a meeting with General Graziani, uh, Marshal Badoglio ordered the complete evacuation of Jebel Akhtar on June 25th, 1930. Three days later, the Italian army, together with Eritrean colonial troops and Libyan collaborators, began to round up the population and their cattle. Italian archival documents date the beginning of the action to the summer of 1930. The overwhelming majority of Libyan contemporary witnesses, however, agree that the first such arrests were made in autumn 1929, so a little earlier. Badoglio's order resulted in the forced relocation of around 100,000 to 110,000 people and their inter into internment in concentration camps. So again, like we said, it was half the population of Cyrenaica. Um, while only one report of the deportation of a single tribe is available in Italian archives, the oral history of the victims reports in detail the extent of the action, which covered the entire area from the Marmarica region on the Egyptian border in the east to the Surti Desert in the west. Uh, it was like a big region, I guess. However, the urban population on the coast and residents of the oasis inland were not affected. Those who had been rounded up had set off in columns or by foot or by camel. Some were also deported um, off the coast by ships. Uh, there were hardly any role models in the colonial history of Africa that put um, Graziani's rabid counter-guerrilla methods in the shade. So this was like such an aggressive campaign. Guarded by mainly Eritrean colonial troops, the entire population was forced together with their belongings and cattle on long death marches that sometimes led over hundreds of kilometers for upwards of 20 weeks. Five fucking months. Anyone who was picked 
anyone who's picked up on the Jabal Akhtar after the forced evacuation had to expect an immediate execution. In the summer heat, a considerable number of the deportees did not survive the rigor of the marches, especially children and the elderly. Anyone who fell to the ground exhausted and could no longer go on was shot by guards. The high death rate was a deliberate consequence of the marches, and on the land that was um, that was freed was again passed into the hands of Italian colonists. Of the 600,000 camels, horses, sheep, goats, and cattle that were taken, only about 100,000 survived. The survivors refer to this deportation in Arabic um, translation as the Path of Tears. Now, was Italy ever prosecuted for these war crimes? Not really. <laughs> Specific war crimes committed by the Italian armed forces against the civil civilians included deliberate bombings, killing of unarmed children, women, elderly, rape, disembowelment of women, throwing prisoners out of aircraft to their death and running them over with tanks, regularly daily executions of civilians in some areas, and bombing tribal villages with mustard gas. Um, and that was all around like 1930. The aftermath of this conflict, uh, in 2008, Italy and Libya reached an agreement in a document compensating Libya for damage caused by Italian colonial rule. Muammar Gaddafi, Libya's ruler at the time, attended the signing ceremony wearing a historical photograph on his uniform that showed the Cyrenaican rebel leader Omar Mukhtar in chains after being captured by Italian authorities during the war. At the ceremony, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi declared, in this historic document, Italy apologizes for its killing, destruction, and repression of the Libyan people during this period of colonial rule. He uh, had a complete moral acknowledgement of the damage inflicted on Libya by Italy during the colonial era. And that, my friend, it's <laughs> fucking wild. Yeah. I didn't know about that. That's I mean, I'm hoping other people are saying that too, right? Now. <laughs> right? Like I knew uh, maybe a little bit, but not to that not to that degree. No, I hadn't. But the stuff that they even said that they did in that, no idea about. No, I did not know. I do find it really interesting though that a lot of the Italian fascist campaigns, military campaigns, seem to be geared towards Africa. Just because, like, in Roman history, there was a lot of conflict with Africa and, like, the Punic Wars and Carthage. So it's like, again, is history just, like, repeating here? Like, what is what is the deal between, like, Italy and Africa? Right? Maybe all these wars we have are really holy wars in a sense. We just have no fucking idea. Maybe. It's wild to me. Very interesting. Yeah, I agree. And uh, that, that's even, there's even things I'm going to be touching on the one I'm going to cover now. There is mm -hmm. an obelisk, and then what is that, the Lion of Judah, that they both took after yes. they went into Ethiopia. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to touch on them a little bit, and I will throw them up on the screen, because, you know, again, I just find this very interesting and start to think that there is occult symbolism behind this stuff. Especially, in my opinion, the Lion of Judah... You know, looks quite like uh, the Lust card uh, Toth deck. And I will throw up other images that that line of Judah I've definitely seen redone 
and other occult stuff. So yeah, very weird. I was yeah, I was interesting that those were the things that they took. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes, and like honestly, I would look at the lion or the beast as being male projective energy, which goes along with an obelisk. I mean, especially this one, because when you see the picture of it, I mean, the head, the top even looks, I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> Let me get into it. Go, go. Yeah, The Second Italian-Ethiopian War was referred to as the, you know, the Second Italio-Abyssinian War. Uh, was a war of aggression which was fought between Italy and Ethiopia from October of 1935 to February of 1937. In Ethiopia, it is often referred to simply as the Italian invasion, and in uh, Italy as the uh, Ethi Ethiopian War. <laughs> it's funny how the name, you know, changes depending on who got their ass kicked, I guess. Right? Yes. <laughs> it is seen as an example of the uh, expansionist policy that characterized the access powers and the ineffectiveness of the League of Nations before the outbreak of the Second World War. On uh, the 3rd of October, 1935, 200,000 soldiers of the Italian army commanded by Marshal, uh, Marshal Emilio Di Bono Attacked uh, from Eritrea. Eritrea. Yeah. Without prior declaration of war. Now, again, could that just be hearsay? Blah, blah, blah. Who knows? All right, at the same time, a minor force under General Rodolfo Grassini, or Gra Graziani attacked from a, a Italian Somalia. On the 6th of October, Adwa was con conquered a uh, symbolic place for the Italian army because of the defeat at the Battle of Adwa by the Ethiopian army during the first Italo-Ethiopian Italio War. So I guess they had lost their, maybe that battle in that place originally, and now they're all excited because they just kicked their ass on that turf <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, Italian troops uh, seized Axum, I'm probably saying that wrong, and an obelisk adorning the city uh, was torn uh, from its site and sent to Rome to be placed symbolically in the front of the building of the Ministry of Colonies. So they took an obelisk from there and brought it to Rome. Exasperated by De Bono's, uh, De Bono's slow and cautious progress, Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini replaced him with General Pietro Badaglio. Badaglio? Yeah, Ethiopian forces attacked the newly arrived invading army and launched a counterattack in December of 1935. But their poor, poorly armed forces cannot resist for long against the modern weapons of the Italians. Even the communication services of the Ethiopian forces depended on foot messengers, and you know they didn't even have radios. So that can even just show you, you know how. I guess, farther advanced technology-wise. Italy was, and, you know, that worked in their favor. Sure. Um, the Ethiopian counteroffensive managed to uh, stop the Italian advance for a few weeks, but the super superiority of the Italian weapons, particularly heavy artillery and airstrikes with bombs and chemical weapons, prevented the Ethiopians from taking advantage of their initial uh, successes. The Italians resumed the uh, offensive in early March, and on the 29th of March in 1936, Graziani bombed the city of Harar 
And two days later, the Italians uh, won a decisive victory in the Battle of Machu, uh, which nullified any possible, uh, possible organized resistance of the Ethiopians. Uh, fighting, fighting between the Italian and the Ethiopian troops persisted until the 19th of February in 1937. On the same day, an attempted assassination of Graziani led to the uh, reprisals. They call it a Yekatit 12 massacre of uh, Addis Ababa, which is something we'll go into later. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do want to... First off, reiterate, supposedly this was a, they did not let them know they were doing this. So this could be looked at, in my opinion, that maybe they went there besides, I guess, to, you know, kick their ass. They also seem to want this obelisk in this line of Judah that they stole as well. Right. So, like, I'm just, just is this part of the reasoning why things are being done? Mm. You know, or like, or, like, sometimes it's like, could this just be like a representation of like meaning like is this like an occult uh does this mean something is, is this yeah, like a like statue or is this like a badge or like you are you advertising something mm -hmm. and somebody's like no I'm taking that that's me now I'm mm. that now you know and like we just defeated you it's just you know I just I question you know, the reasoning behind taking this stuff. Well, and like an obelisk is not an easy thing to take. No, they took you know? it apart actually to, tra yeah. to transport it. It's not, it's not like, um, like a singular statue or like a small, like significant artifact, a crown, you know, like this is heavy duty. You've got to like dismantle it. They, I think they dismantle it into three pieces. It took like months to transport it, re resurrected it in Rome. Right. Outside yeah. the Circus Maximus of all places, I found that really odd. Well, interesting. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, I'm gonna just cover this obelisk real quick. Uh, the mm -hmm. the obelisk of Axum uh, is a fourth century CE, twenty four meters, seventy nine foot tall, uh, phenolite stele. I find that interesting. They call this a stele. These things are steles. Mm -hmm. You know, they have the stele of Revelation by Quillo. Well. Mm -hmm. It's not by him, but he's the one who points it out. Whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, weighing 160 uh, tons, or 160 long tons, 180 short tons, in the city of Axum in Ethiopia. Uh, it is ornamented with two false doors at the base and features decorations resembling windows on all sides. The obelisk ends in a semi-circular semi top, which used to be enclosed by metal frames the obelisk properly termed uh, a stele is found along with many other stele in the city of axum in modern day ethiopia the stele were probably carved and erected during the fourth century ce by subjects of the kingdom of axum an ancient ethiopian civilization erection of stele and axum was a very old practice probably borrowed from the cushitic uh, kingdom of Miro. Their function is supposed to be as markers for underground burial chambers. 
The largest of the grave markers were for royal burial chambers and were decorated with multi-story false windows and false doors, while lesser nobility would have smaller, less decorated ones. King Izana, I'm saying it right, introduced Christianity to Axum, precluding the pagan practice of erecting burial stelae. It also seems that at the feet of each obelisk, together with the grave, there was also a sacrificial altar, supposedly. Over the mm -hmm. course of time, many of these stelae fell over due to several reasons. Uh, reasons. Structural collapse, uh, possibly immediately after their erections, or earthquakes, or military incursions. Um, the Italian occupation of Ethiopia ended in 1937 with looting, in which King uh, Zena's obelisk of Axum was taken to Italy as war booty. <laughs> <laughs> the monolith was cut into three pieces and transported by truck along the torturous route between Axum and the port of uh, Masawa, taking five trips over a period of two months. It traveled by the ship Adwa, arriving in Naples on March 27, 1937. It was transported to Rome, where it was restored, reassembled, and erected on Porta, Porta Capina Square in front of the Ministry for Italian Africa. This square would later become the headquarters of the United Nations Food and Agricultural, Agricultural Organization. That's weird. Yeah, I find that weird. This square <laughs> would later become the headquarters of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And the Circus Maximus. The obelisk was officially unveiled on October 28th, 1937 to commemorate the 15th anniversary of uh, the March on Rome. The operation was coordinated by Ugo, whoever, blah, 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 can't. I can't pronounce that guy's name. And a bronze <laughs> statue of the Lion of Judah symbol on the Ethiopian monarchy was taken along with the ob obelisk and displayed in front of Termini Railroad Station. I find that interesting. Yeah, let me. That is interesting. I've I, I find it interesting that even like Ethiopia has such a significant. Uh, emblem like in the line of judah just speaks to i think they're like even jewish and christian ancient roots yeah. too and then mm -hmm. uh just real quick and then i do want to kind of touch on like this you know this obviously was something that was ruling ethiopia for a while but again this makes me wonder is this why you went there and did this um, in 1947, a UN agreement, uh, Italy agreed to return the stele to Ethiopia, along with the other looted piece, the monument of the lion, uh, the monument to the Lion of Judah. So, I mean, they even supposedly gave it back. Blah blah blah. Um, uh, the Solomonic Dynasty is actually what was like in rule there then. The Solomonic Dynasty, also known as the House of Solomon, was yeah. the ruling dynasty of the Ethiopian Empire from the 13th to 20th centuries. The dynasty was founded by Yukunu Amlak, who overthrew the Zagwe Dynasty in 1270. He claimed descent from the legendary king Menelik I, the supposed son of the biblical 
King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. This claimed ancestry gave the dynasty its name. The dynasty remained in power until 1974, when its last emperor, Haile Selassie, was overthrown by a coup d'etat. But, like, I'm going to even, like, throw up, like, their crest or whatever, you know, this thing is. I mean, it's very occult-looking to me. I mean, it's got crosses. It's got the Star of David or the hexagram. It's got a line Mm -hmm. across all these colors. It's got, it's just, to me, you know, and then the Lion of Judah, even, like, you know, you can see that represented and used other ways in occultism and occult art, in my, my, you know, my opinion. So I just... You know, I just wonder, like, I don't know, is there, a, like, again, was this like a cult fucking wars? Yeah, well, like, the line of Judah is also a reference to Jesus in the Bible, so it's interesting. Very odd, and then, like, the whole King Solomon, like, genealogy, damn. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, and then King real- Solomon, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no it's fine. I didn't want to forget the uh, to, just to cover the rest of the Addis Ababa massacre. Um, that I mean, that one is kind of screwed up in my opinion too. Nineteenth uh, yeah. of February, nineteen thirty-seven, or uh, y- Yekatet twelve, according to the Jeeves calendar. Um, they saw the attempted assassination of Marshal Graziani by uh, Eritrean rebels uh, Abraham Debak and Mogos uh, Mogos. As Gadam, I'm probably screwing these names up. The campaign of reprisals uh, visited by the Italians upon the population of Addis Ababa has been described as the worst massacre in Ethiopian history. Estimates vary on the number of people killed in the three days that followed the attempt on Graziani's life. Ethiopian sources estimated that 30,000 people were killed by the Italians. But Italian sources claim that only a few hundred were killed. A 2017 history of the massacre estimated that 19,200 people were killed, 20% of the population. Over the following week, numerous Ethiopians suspected of opposing Italian rule were rounded up and executed, including members of the Black Lions and other members of the aristocracy. Uh, according to uh, Mockler... Uh, Italian caber, whatever the Italian troops had fired into the crowds of beggars and the poor assembled for the distribution of alms. Like Carbonieri, the po- like police yeah, and army. Yeah, so like, I mean, I understand like they're pissed off that they're like whatever they probably shouldn't even be there to begin with, but then like you know one of somebody actually wanted to like try, try to take the dude out, but then like now you just fucking just unload your guns on all these people that are in front of you like with nothing like waiting for like shit yeah and then you just three days of just killing like I think that's overboard sounds like it's probably a a war crime that's (laughs) That's getting off on on a sickness at that point yeah or or these people are being traumatized by the people telling them what to do you know what I'm saying? Like, you have probably just, like, if there were unwilling people that went along and did that, they are mentally fucked up after that. Yeah. It reminds me of when we covered the Japan stuff about that um, massacre that, it, like, 
it was almost like the soldiers were like drunk with like bloodlust and like was like mass killing and rape and it was just insane. Yeah. Reminds me of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wild one, yeah. I thought that was like a really screwed up one. It is for sure. Yeah, another another glimpse into Italian history I did not know about. Yeah, yeah. Right? So interesting. Um, and then uh, by 1938, we have a lot of interesting racial laws coming into effect yeah. in Italy. Well, that is something I just want to mention real quick uh, before you get into this. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up now or if I was going to bring it up in, in the MK Ultra series mm-hmm. that I'm doing with Thrash. Um, I think I'm just going to mention it here. I was going to leave it for then, but this will probably come out prior. Um, there's this dude, Ezra Pound, and I'm sure probably there is actually a lot of people out there who have probably heard of him, um, maybe more than I'm expecting, but there could be people out there who don't know who he is or just have just heard the name. Um, mm-hmm. he, you know, he was known for supposedly being a fascist, not a fascist. He was in Italy, but, um, you know, he actually comes up as somebody that, uh, doctor that we cover in MK ultra was his psychiatrist in St. Elizabeth's hospital. And this doctor was like somebody fucking with drugs and like was, you know, kind of like the beginning of MK ultra and Ezra pound was supposedly going to be like tried as like a, you know, treasonous person here and this doctor got him off because now nah, he's crazy so he didn't have to you know he gets out so it just seemed convenient that this dude uh was associated with these people and uh you know he was associated associated with mk ultra and then he even has um i can't remember the exact name of it but i will bring it up i'll make sure i bring it up um, when we do an mk ultra he even wrote a book on occultism so we have a dude who was associated with a doctor that was associated with MK Ultra that was, you know, playing fascism whenever it fixed him, you know, or did him okay. Uh, it was a magician. You know, he was also involved with writing these racial laws. Mm-hmm. You know, I have seen other people seem to think that he's also someone to put up on a pedestal. Now, I may not know all that much mm-hmm. about him, but he's an occultist. He was involved with MK Ultra doctors. He got off on being, uh, you know, arrested for shit that he has done. Ah, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of confusion with this dude. Right? Maybe not what he seems yes. or the, the common story around yes. him. Yes, and, not- and I, I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive. You know, he got deemed a whistleblower. Um, so you have a, a a guy who was involved with magic, fascism, MK Ultra, handing you the name the Rothschilds. He was known as a whistleblower kind of conspiracy theorist for his time, and he said because of him being involved with all these people in the past and all these big names, he knows how the world's going, and he was one of the first people to actually hand us their name as a bad guy. I'm not saying the Rothschilds aren't involved in shit but mm-hmm. maybe it's not where we've been looking or not to the extent that we think it is because i'm not going to trust a magician who was involved with mk ultra a magician and himself and fucking fascist when, when, it, when, now, it, when it worked well for them now i don't know if you know the answer to this or not i don't want to put you on the spot but know. did ezra pound like 
die for what he said? No. Ah, so that might tell you something also. Mm. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a cover (laughs) story. Maybe, maybe what we've known this whole time as like conspiracy 101 is really just like a front. Well, I think it's just more sleight of hand. That's why like when people ask me, oh, do you think we'll ever, you know, Mm. I forget, I forget what the question is, but my answer is like, you actually think you really know the names of the people mind fucking? Yeah, we really don't know. No, come on. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, that, yeah. They, and this, again, I like mean, a listen, mafia listen, tactic too, right? Listen, I'll even, and not that I, like, <laughs> people are going to be like, where do you fucking come with this one? But, like, maybe this is just because, like, I've been looking at stuff like this. But to an extent, I do understand the idea of when you're trying to do a supposed exorcism, you need to know the name of what you're dealing with. Sure. You need to know the sound wave and the vibration of the energy you're working with. They're going to keep that away from people. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a theory on that, but that's a whole other yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. I dig it. Okay, so going on through Italy's history uh, into 1938. So these racial laws that NY was just talking about, um, they were, I guess, formally adopted in 1938. So between August and December 1938, Italy adopted a series of legislative provisions that deprived Italian Jews of their civil rights and came to be known as the racial laws. The racial policies of the fascist government had begun in 1937 with the Royal Decree 880, that the 880, which I found jumped out at me mm-hmm. big time. So Decree 880 prohibited the acquisition of concubines and the marriage of Italian citizens with subjects of the Italian colonies. A year later, the policy concentrated mainly on foreign and Italian Jews. Now, isn't, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but isn't, uh, wouldn't the 88 also go with like uh, HH? Yeah. Yeah. So just like for people listening who aren't aware, that's why it jumped out because did you say that like eight being the, I think it's, I guess the eighth letter of the alphabet, you could substitute that with H, right? Yeah. So eight, eight could be code for HH, which could be, you know, I don't you know what, you know, yeah, you, you know what though, <laughs> you know what I find interesting is that when it comes to the person that I think was, you know, my opinion, you know, people are going to disagree with me probably. I really do mm. think the occult, I do think Hitler was into that, but uh, Heinrich Himmler, I think, was really more of, like, the the actual magician, really. Mm -hmm. And the HH would still fit for him. Totally. So I have really wondered, like, because they have, like, there's Nazi, I guess, materialistic, I don't know, like, battalions or whatever. These underground things that use 88 and 44 and supposedly the 88 is for the 8, you know, the... The Hitler one, and I've always questioned that. How do you really, Heinrich Himmler, how do you know it's not for that? I never even thought of that before. That's a good point for Heinrich Himmler. Yeah, yeah and it's just um, like even you say, you know, that the fours and the eights, it goes with like the right pillar, you know, and that projective yes, male energy. masculine. The prince, and the, the prince and the king. Beast rising energy, right? Very interesting. So, a little bit of a timeline here on the development of these racial laws. 
So July 1938, we've got the Giornale d'Italia anonymously publishing the Manifesto of Racist Scientists. Wow. (laughs) A month later, the document is made public by the Minister of Popular Culture, Dino Alfieri, and underwritten by 10 academics. (laughs) I'm going to say the word they used. Academics in the field of medicine, science, and humanities. Figures in all fields adhere to the manifesto. So this reminds me too of Japan. How like the academics and the doctors, they were very like ultra pro-nationalist and into like pushing that dominant race. Now in Japan, it was like a spiritual purity. That was the dominant race. But here we're talking about more, yeah, well, spiritual also because it's related to religion and genetics here. Interesting. So from uh, September to December 1938, the fascist government issues a series of provisions regulating with separate bills the exclusion of foreign and Italian Jews from schools, academics, politics, finances, the professional world, and all sectors of public and private life. Um, Italian citizens of the Jewish religion were no longer allowed to attend school and marry non-Jew, to be drafted in the army, to own or administer firms to own or administrate land and real estate over certain value to hire non-jewish employees to be hired in public administration by political parties banks insurance companies newspapers publishing houses artistic endeavors research or educational institutions the public agencies in charge of consensus and demographic records became part of the government task force for the defense of race they are not shy about it (laughs) That's no. for sure. Wow. Okay, so then we're moving on to February 1939. We have the introduction of a bill that adds new limitations to the ability of Jews to own real estate and commercial activities. Interesting. July 1939, introduction of rulings that severely limit the rights and mobility of Italian Jews in terms of family law, estate law, and use of last name. July 1940, new taxes are imposed on Jewish professionals. February 1941, the state agency that regulates the seizing of Jewish property receives authorization to liquidate property. Mm-hmm. April 1942, the use of theatrical and musical materials authorized uh, authored by Jews is prohibited. No Jewish culture allowed. October 1942, new limitations are imposed and enforced on Jewish citizens residing in Libya. Again with Libya. November 30th, 1943, the police issues the order to arrest Jews residing in Italy and territories under Italian control. In July 1944, new rulings are issued to seize and liquidate Jewish assets. Interesting. So we have a slow tiptoe here. Yeah. Articles according to the racial manifesto include human races exist. In some points, there are great races and small races. This is not me saying this. This is the manifesto, yeah. okay? Just to be clear. The notion of race is purely biological. The majority of the current Italian population is of the Aryan origin of and of Aryan civilization. So like the Germans believed it is a mere legend that large masses of migrants came into the country there is today a pure italian race this is 1938 it is 
time that Italians proclaimed themselves genuinely racist. It is necessary to make a distinction between the Mediterranean people of Europe, aka Westerners, and African people. The Jews do not belong to the Italian race. The purely European physical and psychological characteristics of the Italian people must not be altered. End of manifesto. <laughs> That's some wild yeah. radical shit. There's so many flaws in that, honestly. Like, I'm not a historian by any means, but, like, I'm Sicilian. I can tell you that Sicily was conquered by a lot of cultures prior to 1938. Mm. Like, there, there is no such thing as, like, a pure-blooded Italian. Like, there, w- there was large immigration and movement of peoples in the Roman Empire. It was very multicultural. Like, what are they talking about yeah, here? It's yeah. just like making up some some mythos to suit their ideology. It'd be like saying, you know, like today with like the rise of ultranationalism, you could say like, I'm a pure-blooded American. Bro, there is no such thing as a pure-blooded American, right? Like you all came from somewhere else unless you're an indigenous person. Yeah. Right? Well, pro-government and <laughs> People that love the flag, they think that they're pure blood. That's what I mean. They like put on this put on this mythic personality that um, doesn't exist. Mm. That's a really good point. I was actually thinking that while you were getting before you said it, but I was like, uh, I was like that might be like pushing it. But I totally Sorry. no, but I totally <laughs> agree. I mean, this, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, to me, it's wild. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, we're going to cover uh, a few other things uh, as well. Uh, we don't want to leave uh, Albania out. Um, no. Italy invaded the uh, Albanian kingdom on the 7th of April in 1939. Albania was quickly overrun by the 12th of April in 1939, forcing its ruler, King Zog, into exile. What a name. Yeah. Albania was then part of the Italian Empire as a uh, protectorate in a personal union with the Italian crown. Italian citizens began to settle in Albania as colonists and to own land so they could gradually transform it into Italian soil. The Italianization of Albania was one of the was one of Mussolini's plans. From 1940, growing uh, Albanian resistance to Italian rule led to an increase in repressive and punitive measures against the Albanian population. From the 14th to the 18th of July, 1943, the Italian army conducted a large anti-partisan operation in villages surrounding the town of Malacaster, destroying 80 Albanian villages and killing hundreds of civilians. According to the statistics of the Albanian National Institute of Resistance, the Italian occupiers were responsible for 28,000 dead, 12,600 wounded, 43,000 interned in concentration camps, 61,000 homes burned, and 850 villages destroyed. Good times, huh? Great times. Yugoslavia. 1941, Mm. Italian uh, 
Invader, uh, in, sorry, it, it's Italy invaded Yugoslavia. My freaking webcam is like over <laughs> covering my notes. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, webcam. Yeah. <laughs> invaded Yugoslavia, occupying a large portions of uh, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Macedonia. In 1942, Mussolini told Mario Roeda, commander of the second Italian. Uh, second italian army that the best situation is when the enemy is dead so we must take numerous hostages and shoot them whenever necessary to uh, to Im Im implement this roada suggested the closure of the province of fume in croatia the evacuation of the people in the east of the former frontiers to a distance of three to four kilometers inland the organization of border patrols to kill anyone attempting to cross. The mass internment of uh, twenty to 30,000 persons to the Italian concentration camp. <laughs> Burning down houses, you know, as they're going, and confiscating property from the villages suspected of having contact with partisans of, uh, for, for, for families of Italian soldiers. He also mentioned the need to extend the plan to Damascia and for the construction of concentration camps. Royata insisted, it's necessary, don't shy away from using cruelty. It must be a complete cleansing. We need to intern all the habitants and put Italian families in their place. Whoa. All right. Okay, so after crazy times in Albania... Italy has a conflict with Greece. So a similar phenomenon took place in Greece in the immediate post-war years. The Italian occupation of Greece was often brutal, resulting in reprisals such as the Dominican, Dominican, Dominican massacre. Uh, the Greek government claimed that Italian occupation forces destroyed 110,000 buildings and via various causes inflicted economic damage of $6 billion. That's calculated for inflation in current years. While executing 11,000 civilians, in terms of the percentage of direct and indirect destruction, this was almost identical to the figures attributed to German occupation forces. The Italians also presided over the Greek famine while occupying the majority of the country, and along with the Germans, were responsible for it by initiating a policy of wide-scale plunder of everything of value in Greece, including food for its occupation forces. Ultimately, the Greek famine led to the deaths of 300,000 civilians. Pope Pius XII, in a contemporary letter, directly blamed the fascist Italian government for the deaths uh, in addition to the Germans. This is a quote. Axis authorities in Greece are robbing the starving population of their entire harvest of corn, grapes, olives, and currants. Even vegetables, fish, milk, and butter are being seized. Italy is the occupying power, and Italy is responsible for the proper feeding of the Greek people. After the war, the story of Greece will be an indelible blot on the good name of Italy, at any rate, fascist Italy. End quote. Pretty crazy. Yeah. I had no idea about these things. It's just fascinating. Um, another important thing to note around 1943 was, um, sorry, the 
the rise of the Italian Social Republic. So the Italian Social Republic was the second and last incarnation of the Italian fascist state led by Benito Mussolini and his reformed anti-monarchist Republican fascist party. The newly founded state declared Rome its capital, but was de facto centered in Salò, um, a small town on Lake Garda near Brescia, where Mussolini and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs were headquartered. The Italian Social Republic nominally exercised sovereignty in northern and central Italy, but was largely dependent on German troops to maintain control. In in July 1943, after the Allies had pushed Italy out of North Africa and subsequently invaded Sicily, the Grand Council of Fascism, with the support of King Victor Emmanuel III, overthrew and arrested Mussolini. The new government began secret peace negotiations with the Allied powers. When the armistice, armistice, armistice <laughs> of was announced on September 8th, Nazi Germany was prepared and quickly intervened. German troops seized control of the northern half of Italy, freed Mussolini, and brought him to the German-occupied area to establish a satellite regime. The Italian Social Republic was therefore proclaimed on September 23, 1943. Although the... Now, I'll just refer it as the RSI. So, in Italian, that would be the acronym. Although the RSI claimed sovereignty over most of the Italian peninsula, its de facto jurisdiction only extended to a vastly reduced portion of the country. The RSI received diplomatic recognition only from the Axis powers and their satellite states. Finland and Vichy France, although in the German orbit, did not recognize it. Unofficial relations were maintained with Argentina, not surprising, Portugal, Spain, and through commercial agent Switzerland. I thought Switzerland was supposed to be neutral. Uh, CERN. <laughs> just saying. I just right. yeah, I thought Argentina and Switzerland was interesting. Yeah, definitely Argentina for sure. The Vatican City did not recognize the RSI. Just saying, they did not at this moment in time. <laughs> <laughs> Around April twenty fifth, nineteen forty five. 19 months after its founding, the RSI all but collapsed. In Italy, the day is known as Liberation Day. On that day, a general partisan uprising alongside the efforts of Allied forces during their final offensive in Italy managed to oust the Germans from Italy almost entirely. On April 27th, Italian partisans caught Mussolini, his mistress, several RSI ministers, and several other Italian fascists while they were attempting to flee. On April 28th, the partisans shot and killed Mussolini and most of the other captives, including Clara Pataki. Is that his mistress? I think. I don't know. I'll have to look up that name later. The RSI Minister of Defense, Rodolfo Graziani, that guy we kept mentioning before, surrendered what was left of the Italian Social Republic on May 1st, which is past that day, one day after the German forces in Italy capitulated. Hmm. Stuff. And that, my friend, uh, is that. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't want to get too much into it, but there is some stuff I will uh, cover, I guess, kind of with World War Two, and then wrap it up with that. Um, you know, and even, you know, I guess you could even say with a lot of this stuff, you know, who's to say, you know, how truthful all of it is. You know, or some numbers, uh, 
you know, I do just think uh, when it comes to World War II, it wasn't much different than what I think happened to us in the last few years. You know, so I, you have to question, you know, uh, the numbers and everything. Not not denying something didn't happen. It's just I, I think the propaganda was off the charts then as it has been in the last, you know, four or five years. Absolutely. So, you know, who knows? But, uh, you know, I am going... So, with, with that said, I mean, I know there's some people out there who don't believe any of this happens. So, you know, if, you, if, you, if, if you don't, I guess just humor me or... <laughs> Shut this part off. I don't know what to tell you, but I will, uh, you know, go into, uh, you know, it's whatever. And the weird thing is, is that just to me, like I was even saying to you before, it's just, you know, going by even like the storyline again, it's like, even if this stuff did happen mm-hmm. again, Italy was just like, you know, how much of it was it that like, we we're just going to let you walk in and do, you know, again, well, we don't want our names off. It just, Seems they let Germany take the blame for all, yeah, I, a lot of know. things, you know. And then when they saw it was going like it, like when I was reading some of some of the research, it seemed like Italy was hesitant to go full full on. Yes, right. Yes. Like the general Italian person, it seems. I'm sure there was some extremists, of course. Well, this is all all extreme, but um, the general population didn't seem to embrace the ideology as readily as like the German people did. Or maybe the German people did it because they were more scared of their government. I don't know. You know what I mean? But it definitely seems that what it, it didn't take as deeply rooted as it did in Germany for some reason. You know what the funny thing is, is that like, if you were to go back and like look at some of the stuff that Hitler did, it's like, you c- I could see him, like, instilling tons of fear, but then at the same rate, he also had, like, tons of people in awe by him at the same time. Yeah. So it's like you well, even had a lot of people that were, like, in line with what he had. I mean, maybe that was part of the fear in itself. Who knows? I think that's the whole, like, the whole rise of fascism is because people are afraid of the alternative. So they cling to this, like, desire for, like, order... Uh, what they perceive to be justice, things like this. And like, from my understanding, Hitler and Mussolini both did do a lot of like positive things for their countries initially. Even like my grandfather is named after Mussolini. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, because at the time, well, my great grandparents didn't live in Italy when Mussolini reigned, but I guess from what they were learning and hearing through like news and stuff, it seemed good. At first, at first, and that's how it always happens. At first, you know, uh, Hitler was bringing a lot of like rise in classical architecture and culture and same with Mussolini. Like part of their manifesto is like, we're going to promote Italian culture. Well, doesn't that sound good? To the average Italian person, it probably sounded great, right? They're like, cool, we'll embrace that. But as time goes on, then it's like, it comes with all this other odd extreme ideology that people were like, whoa. <laughs> Chill, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Chill the fuck out. <laughs> All right. So uh, the Holocaust in Italy was the persecution, deportation, and murder of Jews between 1943 and 1945 in the Italian Social Republic, the part of the Kingdom of Italy occupied by Nazi Germany and the Italian, uh, and the Italian surrender of September 8th, 1943. 
The oppression of Italian Jews began in 1938 with the enactment of racial laws of segregation by the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini. Before the Italian surrender in 1943, however, Italy and the Italian occupation zones in Greece, France, and Yugoslavia have been places of relative safety for local Jews and European Jewish refugees. This changed in September of 1943 when German forces occupied the country, installed the puppet state of the Italian Social Republic, and immediately began persecuting and deporting the Jews found there. Italy had a pre-war Jewish population of 40,000, but through evacuation and refugees, this number in increased during, uh, during the war. Of the estimated 44,500 Jews living in Italy before September 1943, 7,680 were murdered during the Holocaust, mostly at Auschwitz. Nearly uh, 37,000 survived. In this, the Italian police and fascist militia played an integral role as the Germans' accessories. While most Italian concentration camps were police and transit camps, one camp, the Rizira di San Saba, I'm screwing this up, was also an extermination camp. It is estimated that up to 5,000 political prisoners were murdered there. More than 10,000 political prisoners and 40,000 to 50,000 captured Italian soldiers were interned and killed overall. Mm. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, uh, in 1938, under the Italian racial laws, Italian Jews lost their civil, civil rights, including those to property, education, and employment, like you had even covered before. They were, removed, they were removed from government jobs, the armed forces, and public schools. To escape persecution, around 6,000 Italian Jews immigrated to other countries in 1838 to 1839. In June of 1940, the outbreak of World War II, the fascist Italian government opened around 50 concentration camps. It's a lot. Oh, it sure fucking sounds like it to me. God. People wow. are like, I didn't even know Italy had one. Right? <laughs> I think most people know that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but... These were used predominantly to hold political prisoners were also around 2,200. 2,200 Jews, mm, <laughs> Jews of foreign nationality. Italian Jews were not interned. The Jews That's in these, interesting. Yeah. The Jews in, the, in these camps were treated no differently than political prisoners. While living conditions and food were often basic, prisoners were not subject to violent treatment. The fascist regime even allowed a Jewish-Italian organization to operate illegally in support of the Jewish internees. That's weird. That's S uh, some sympathy there. Yeah, yeah. That's Agnes Malin. That's it interesting. Nice. Who knows? The murdering of the Jews in Italy began on September 8th, 1943, after German troops seized control of northern and central Italy, freed Benito Mussolini from prison, and installed him as the head of the puppet state of the Italian Social Republic. I was kind of reiterating myself. Uh, the Congress of Verona, the attitude to the Italian fascists towards Italian Jews changed drastically in November of 1943 after the fascist authorities declared them to be enemy, uh, uh, enemy nationality during the Congress of 
Verona and began to participate uh, actively in the prosecution and arrest of Jews. Initially, after the Italian surrender, the Italian police had only assisted in the roundup of Jews when requested to do so by German authorities. With the Manifest of Verona, in which Jews were declared foreigners and in times of war enemies, this changed. Police Order Number 5 on November 30th, 1943, issued by Guido Buffarini Guidi. God, Minister of the... It's like, you even want to be called a Guido anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Minister of the Interior of RSI ordered the Italian police to arrest Jews and confiscate their property. This order, however, exempted Jews over the age of 70 or mixed marriages, which frustrated the Germans who wanted to arrest and deport all the Italian Jews. Yeah. Just wanted to, you know, toss that in there. And then they also have, uh, maybe I'll throw this up and I'll just read them off real quick. You had the Nakra camp, the Abyar, the Adja, you know what? I can't even read all these. Derma, <laughs> Poliana, just, I mean, I'll just throw it up on the screen. They had, I mean, this is just a small list of them, but yeah. I mean, looking at it, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they had camps and stuff. Well, just so to kind of put it in like a pop culture reference, um, you know, the movie Life is Beautiful from mm-hmm. like 1997. That is about this time in history. It's about an Italian Jewish father and his son and during the like Italian Social Republic and they get put in a concentration camp. So if you've seen that movie, uh, you've seen you've seen evidence of this time in history. That's true. That's true. Mm hmm. I have heard yeah. of that. I think it might be. Yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderful movie, actually. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. that wraps it up there. You know, <laughs> actually, I actually went longer than I thought this would be. <laughs> I thought it was going to be shorter than Japan. Nope. You know. Going hard on our own people. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I don't, honestly, that's why I don't feel bad doing it because it's not like you can be like, oh, no, what? It's, hist- it's historical. I mean, you know. I think it's important to know. And like when I would um, watch like certain movies during the last few years, I would be like extremely disturbed because seeing like these totalitarian steps like take place, it hit like way too close to home. You know, like I was watching like The Pianist in like 2021 and I was like, uh, this is like not, this is not okay. So it's important to be familiar with the history so you can recognize the steps when they occur. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and you know, again, like one of the reasons why I mentioned in the beginning why I was like trying to cover certain things because I did have like, I guess, uh, an idea why I wanted to cover all these certain topics. You know, again, history repeats itself too. You know, I think sometimes, you know, all these labels and names to what these groups are and what these things are actually screw everything up. And in my opinion, that's even part of the magic behind it. If you were to just remove names and just look at how people are reacting, if you take away, uh, you know, just just look at things as how they look visually. Remove names and labels. You know, you can see what was going on sometimes in Germany here and just other places, you know, uh, you know, one person at a microphone with a gigantic fucking crowd around them, mesmerizing people. Regardless yeah. of what name they're under, you see the same stuff sometimes. 
-hmm. matter what reason in science or whatever, you're seeing the same stuff happening over and over again. We just give it different names, different labels, and different reasons for people to fucking accept it or hate it. You know, but I see a lot of really the re same repeating shit happening with humans. You know, being pushed, being made to believe things, being mm -hmm. made to accept certain things over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, and then when we throw these political and all these other names on it, it just convolutes it. You know, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's, I think what you're trying to get at is to be aware of the manipulation of your thought and opinion. You know, when you see certain things like being pushed or, you know, certain agendas, right? Like watch your own reaction because you might be reacting in exactly the way that they want you to. You could either go along with the proposed narrative and ideology and that's one trap. Or you can go react as they want you to react, and that's another trap, right? Mm. So it's important to just kind of like be mindful of how you're being played either way. I think you know, you know and then I'll and then I'll leave it like this. Even just perfect for why I think sometimes a small child is, you know, a child is a symbol for Tifereth. Think if if you were a child and somebody like all the things that we have covered was flashed on a TV in front of you. You don't understand what a Nazi is. You don't understand what a fascist is. You don't understand what chemicals are. You don't understand all this stuff. But what you'll see is the vision of what is happening to humans. And the child will actually understand probably more hmm. about how we're acting and thinking and responding than an average human will because they're mind fucked by the fucking labels. Yeah. Well, conditioned over time. A child is just going to look at it as it is. It's not picking fucking favorites yet. Mm-hmm. Doesn't know any better yet. No. Sometimes it's a gift, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, have a beginner's mind at all times, right? Yeah. Just like a blank slate. <laughs> So that's, you know, that's part of, you know, why I'm covering this and other things that still will be going forward. It's more of like kind of um, just trying to show you, I think, you know, the past being repeated, but, you know, just in a different way. <laughs> Repackaged. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's just an easy way to, like, get it, I think, to get a message across and kind of present it in a different way. You know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Teresa, for uh, for doing that one with me. That was a long fucking... Yeah. That was a long, long I learned a lot, so I'm glad you know yeah. that you had me on for this because it was very interesting. Yeah, and and mm -hmm. if people, I mean, if you were listening and you don't mind going back and looking at certain things, like you know, there are things I'm going to throw up, especially with some of the symbolism. Like I, I really do think like there is some sort of an occult undertone with all this stuff that we went over. So mm -hmm. if you don't mind checking it out, you know, just to get the visual and to you know maybe not think I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> I think, no, I think if somebody's, you know, understanding and they see these things, they're going to be like, these things have fucking meaning to them, to someone, you know. To someone. So, yes. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for doing that. Uh, if the people are still listening, thank you again. I know that was a longer episode and it was very, like, a lot of, like, stuff being information at once. 
So uh, I do appreciate the listeners. That's what's up for the people that stick through these type of episodes. I appreciate you spending your time and attention even doing so. Yes. (laughs) And that is the end of another NY Patriot episode. Check out the links for the Spiritual Gangsters, Teresa's Badass Podcast. That's in the bottom as well. And check out all the links for my show and the Occult Rejects. And until the next one, everybody be well. Later.